in devising AD therapeutics, right, the best thing you could possibly do is get ahead of the disease and treat it at the earliest stage and prevent it from developing into full-blown form, right? Once once a neuron is gone and dead, it's it's gone and dead, and you can't give a magic drug to bring it back. The best thing that we've got right now as a scientific community that we can recommend is live well. Hi there. Welcome to this MindRamp Science podcast interview with Jesse Wiley of Sage BioNetworks. I'm Michael C. Patterson, CEO of MindRamp Coaching and Consulting. The MindRamp podcast explores our quest for longevity. We're interested in anything that gives us insight into how we can live long and live well. Longevity plus quality of life. And the science podcasts focus on, well, the science that informs our thinking about brain health and mental management. This is our second podcast that I've pulled from a Zoom conversation I had with Jesse. In the first, Jesse explained aspects of the Treat AD project to develop new drug approaches for Alzheimer's. In this podcast, Jesse goes into more detail about how Treat AD identifies new targets for drug interventions. One fascinating bit of evidence they have uncovered is that mitochondrial malfunction seems to be highly associated with the development of dementia, which makes sense since mitochondria provide the energy needed to run every cell in our body and brain. If that breaks down, then the cells are going to start breaking down. Our exploration of the mitochondria clue takes us into a discussion of epigenetics and then to the impact of behavior and lifestyle choices. Take a listen. One of the things that we've done over the last year um, that I think is really exciting and when, when I came on board, you know, one of the things that I needed to do was to break down the different biological areas that that contribute to AD. And so that was one of the first places as an organizational effort, right? First, first off, just so when we're targeting genes, how do we really check ourselves and make sure that we have a diversity of targets that we're going after and that all of those aren't just like clustered around one biological function? So, you know, I, that was one of the first things that I was involved in is breaking out what those different biological domains in AD or endophenotypes are that we're going to sort of operationalize. Can you give me an example of what a biological domain would be? What are two or three of them? Absolutely. So we've we've broken it down now into 15. And so that one, those would be things like synaptic dysfunction. So you have synaptic loss in AD. So synaptic dysfunction as a group, right? Looking at synapses. Another group would be structural stabilization, immune response. Everybody knows that immune response is involved in AD at this point. It's in the press all the time. So, you know, autophagy is another area where we've, where we've branded that as a biological domain. Jesse, can you explain what autophagy is? It's where you take things up. You basically, you, you take particulate matter in the cell. There's different types of it. You take different things that are in the cell that you want to get destroyed. And those can be dysfunctional mitochondria or aggregations of proteins. You bundle them up in a, in a membrane and you send them to the lysosome. It fuses with the lysosome and that's a very acidic, highly proteolytic domain and it gets chopped up, chewed up and gotten rid of. 
So now we can go and we can look for where do we see clusters of risk within genes? Where do we see genes sitting that seem to have a high risk level that within for AD within various different biological processes? And can we see which biological processes have the highest risk as a, as a whole? And then can we drill down in that biological process? So that's that was really exciting, and you know, and it kind of it kind of blew us away when we did that because the first thing that we saw leaping out was yeah, we saw a lot of synaptic genes were downregulated, but we saw above and beyond everything else, we saw mitochondrial function was just not right. Relative. And and that was you know, that was really eye opening, and it was like wow, this is I mean, it was scored really robustly. And, you know, we ended up having a whole symposium on mitochondrial function. And this is another thing where I'm saying where it's like we're trying to build community, right? We find this coming out of our analysis. So the first thing we do is announce it to the whole consortium. We invite, you know, four of the world's mitochondrial experts to come and talk to us. And we kind of throw out like, hey, this is what we tripped into that we discovered. This is pretty cool. It meets with it, it lines with what's being seen in a lot of different investigative endeavors right now. Can you educate us a little bit? Because we're not experts in this area. And, and we spent a day doing that. It was really great. And it was actually it's fostered some ongoing collaborations. And so that's, you know, I think that's one of the kind of functions where we're saying, hey, we'd really like to try and put some new drivers in the AD field. So one of the things that Jesse and the Treat AD Consortium are working on is identifying what specifically seems to be going wrong in brains that develop dementia. And there are a lot of them. Jesse's team has identified 18 different factors like synaptic dysfunction, the the communication between cells is breaking down. And some of these factors seem to be more highly associated with dementia than others, like chronic immune dysfunction and the breakdown of mitochondrial function. Well, Jesse then went on to describe a new process called pseudotime, which is a new and innovative way of tracking the trajectory of dementia development. In devising AD therapeutics, right, the best thing you could possibly do is get ahead of the disease and treat it at the earliest stage and prevent it from developing into full-blown form, right? Once once a neuron is gone and dead, it's it's gone and dead, and you can't give a magic drug to bring it back. And uh, not to get into all of the complexities of regenerative medicine and stem cell approaches to potentially repopulate neuronal populations right. and and or driving neurogenesis, you know those are those are active areas of investigation. But from a drug development standpoint, the simplest thing to do is just stop the neurons from dying in the first place. That means you need to know something about how the disease progresses, right? You need to know what does the beginning of the disease look like and what are those first steps where things start to go wrong, where we might be able to be like, okay, full stop. No, we're not going to go there. Put the brakes on and let's, let's not go any farther down that disease pathology road. We can't know that unless we know sort of what the staging looks like. And people have been coming at this so far by looking at different stages of disease in terms of the pathology readout 
um, then looking at people in terms of different cognitive dysfunction, did they die with mm-hmm. MCI versus late stage AD? And those are, those are all really valuable, but it doesn't give you the same granularity of information that if you could have a, you know, a gene expression or a protein expression map of what the disease trajectory looks like, right? we see a huge spike of this, this cluster of proteins going at the early stage of AD. Mm -hmm. Now we've got something that we can zoom in and be like, this is, this is a really fruitful area for us to think about more in terms of drug development. My colleague at Sage named Laura Heath has been working with this, this technology called pseudotime. The pseudotime is, is really interesting, complicated, but at the simplest version of it, it basically takes any starting point, like say healthy brains, and any endpoint, say Alzheimer's disease, and it looks at genome-wide differential expression between point A and at point Z, and it makes inferences about a lot of states that fall in between A and Z, so that you can get at a quasi-temporal ordering of what the disease trajectory looks like from a genetic standpoint. What they found was that this really lines nicely with cognitive scores, pathology scores. So let me ask you that going back to the mitochondrial mm-hmm. misfunction, which seemed to rise to the top of your research, if, if the mitochondria is not producing energy, then that makes sense that that could have this whole cascading effect on all kinds of other systems. And if you look at it along your timeline here, If I'm understanding what you're saying, it would be great if we could say, ah, here we see the beginning of a breakdown of mitochondrial function. If we can intervene at that point and correct the mitochondrial function, am I making sense here? Is that exact? Yes. No, it's exactly right. It gives you a way of taking you know, this, these giant data sets of like, here's the 5,000 genes that go up and here's the 5,000 genes that go down in Alzheimer's disease and parse those out across a inferred linear continuum. And we did that. And that was the part that, you know, we had Laura ran her, her proteomic data. So proteomic data and analysis of proteins coming out of these brain bank studies of what proteins go up and what proteins go down. Right. And she looked at those events and then and then we map those over to the biological domain so that we can organize it a little bit at a little bit higher level. Right. Because a lot of times, you know, you can't see the forest for the trees. When we went through and we operationally uh, mapped all of the all of the proteomic data through pseudotime onto the biological domains. It was like it was like getting punched in the face. Right. I mean, it was like you see that one of the, the first step in pseudotime you see this massive decrease in mitochondrial function and you see a massive increase in immune response, right? So like that was the first thing we see. Immune goes up, mitochondria goes down. Whether those are you know linked and which one is driving which, don't know. But that's yeah. that gives us a place to, it gives us a reference point that's really consistent with the data, right? But it also yeah. now gives us specific sets of genes that we're seeing that cluster to specific functions that we can start thinking about in terms of how would you how would you intervene in this so the question then to my mind is that you've identified that mitochondrial dysfunction is like the starting point a, a conceivable best bet starting point then the question is why why do the mitochondria start malfunctioning and it it seems like mostly you're looking at gene function 
what would go wrong with the genes that they would start not supporting mitochondria? And is there anything else to look at besides the genes or what in the environment or in your behavior is causing gene expression to be different that's causing mitochondrial dysfunction? Yeah, this is a fabulous question. I'm trying to decide how to start answering that. Okay, so you get downregulation of all of these mitochondrial genes. That suggests that you know this is this is a change in co-expression of these genes. That suggests we're looking at a gene regulatory event that is being modulated. We're looking at epigenetics in some way that is impinging upon the regulation of these genes, right? There is some phenomenon that is driving that gene expression down. The realization that, you know, that we're going to have to start looking at epigenetics was really, was one that was extraordinarily exciting, actually. And, you know, and it was, it was during one of our meetings, the head of our drug development group, Stephen Fry, was like, well, it's very clear how you target downregulated genes. You target them epigenetically. You repress the repressor. And so what we need to know is what is repressing these genes. And if we can figure out what's repressing these genes or not activating these genes, then we've got a, then we've got a drug target. His point is that the method for tackling that problem is understood, right? Not that we necessarily know what factors are involved in these particular, these particular systems of regulation. Now, the epigenetic factors are going to be non-genetic factors, right? That's what epigenetics means, right? So are they behavioral factors and lifestyle? Does this get us into doing more exercise, eating better? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the consortium is designed around, you know, a drug development platform. That's how, that's, that's the structure of the consortium is to make therapeutics. And, you know, the, the thing that I think is really interesting, and, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, is that. One of the things that comes out of this kind of organization tests that, you know, things that we do on a lifestyle basis that may impact these factors, right? It's like if you could do something from a lifestyle perspective that could impact the level of immune activation that you're seeing, then that might be really good to do. And and I think that, you know, there's huge, as you said, exercise, right? I mean, I think the best people ask me, they're like, oh, you're an Alzheimer's researcher. What can you do? And I'm like, run regularly or go ride your bike. Right. And, you know, it's like exercise a lot. The best, the best thing that we've got right now as a scientific community that we can recommend is live well. And, you know, and I think that that's, as you pointed out, the, the data coming out of Mia Kevipoto's work and the finger consortium, you know, is really, you know, is, is really interesting and telling in that respect. You know, if we live well and sleep well, you eat well, keep your brain active, um, you know, good things will happen. And and I think that the data showing that exercise in particular, I mean, I'm a great fan of that. Um, my kids less so because I make them exercise a lot. <laughs> but, um, you know, but I, I think that, you know, there's, there's huge benefit from the standpoint of brain health to getting good exercise. And you think about the various different areas that are involved in a, in Alzheimer's disease, vascular pathology, you know, I mean, let's right. think about vascular pathology, immune activation, and, you know, there's all, there's a multitude of ways in which the way in which we live our lives 
you know, impacts on our physiology that is invariably contributing to disease. And I think that while it's not our primary objective, I think that in sort of an unintended benefit of some of the things that we're doing is that we might have a better organizational system for looping in other avenues of exploration, like how, you know, can we see benefits from things like, you know, exercise, changing diet and so forth? certain extent, you know, if we can do a better job of identifying when people are actually on a trajectory towards dementia, yeah. then we should tell them to do the stuff that we should all be doing anyway. Right. You know, so it's like, mm, it's something like $73 million that's been invested overall in this. I wish some of that, some of that money were invested in public policy and, and public health initiatives to try to get people to do more exercise, you know, try to influence the food industry to actually produce better and healthier foods. What are we going to get out of this? What, what is the best scenario that you see happening from the drug point of view? Are we going to come up with a cocktail of drugs that um, are going to treat all of these different factors? I mean, if your hypothesis is right and there's this one trigger that we can get, that would be terrific, right? Life is never that simple. I, I, you know, it's there, there, that was there was a lot there. So let me hit softly a couple points. One, it's likely that there is a certain level of simplicity involved, right? Single mutations and single genes are causing some process to be disrupted that amplifies forward and causes Alzheimer's disease. We see that replicated by across age and people with varying risk factors and lifestyle conditions that recapitulate the same disease. So something is going on and getting dysregulated in the cell that is triggering a similar set of events over a different time course. So there's that. And I think understanding what that might be and what that looks like is going to be incredibly useful just as knowledge in and of itself, right? And I think that what we're seeing, what we're going to see is that how this spans out, you know, this may have been, this is being developed as a drug drug development pipeline, but we may find that there's a lot of having that knowledge may have unintended benefits as well, right? In terms of just health physiology and genes, right. we just discovered that, you know, this particular kind of exercise is really good for damping down various forms of vascular pathology and immune response. Mm -hmm. Well, that may, that's, that's great data now, right? Now we can sort of fit that into the disease trajectory model. Yeah. I mean, to your original statement, we should all be living well, right? I mean, <laughs> it, we should start early. We should start at birth. We should eat well. We should exercise. Yeah. A real problem that we don't recognize the power of healthy living, right? A, a good night's sleep, eating healthy and get some good exercise. You know, it does wonders for you. There are a lot of reasons that people should be really trying to focus on, on living a healthier life. And at the very most simple level, right, we know that exercising stimulates neurotrophic expression, which stimulates neuronal survival. Mm. It also drives neurogenesis. Right. So, you know, you want to make more neurons and you want to stimulate the, the survival mechanisms for the ones you have, you know, go for a bike ride. You know, that's a, that's a great, you know, that's, it's one of the best things that we've got right now. So, you know, so I guess I would, you know, I, I agree with you that I think that, you know, that if we could have a more holistic approach where we're actually looking at not only therapeutic interventions, but we're looking at lifestyle interventions too, that would, that's, you know, that's the best of both worlds, right? I 
I want to give a big thank you to Jesse Wiley for taking the time to talk with me about this incredibly important topic and to Sage Bio Networks for giving Jesse the green light to share so much about what they're doing with the Treat AD project. That openness is perfectly consistent with their mission and their whole approach to community science. One of our goals at MindRamp is to translate important science into plain language that can be understood by any intelligent person, and also to translate the science into real things that we can do to keep our brains healthy and our minds sharp. We 100% hope that Jesse and his fellow scientists can come up with a drug that will help us all to keep our brains healthy and prevent or significantly slow the gradual descent towards dementia. Until that drug comes along, we will continue to encourage people to make behavior and lifestyle choices that have been shown to keep our bodies and brains healthy. Thanks so much for listening. Here's hoping you will live long and live well.